Hello, America. I am the Chief Mark Garrett. Welcome to your Leo Nation, where we believe in the rule of law, a civil society, and self-responsibility. Uh, some principles and values that are all too rare now, unfortunately. But with people like my guest tonight, I think we can win this battle that we're in to uh, save America and get back to the things that made us great. And uh, I'm so happy to welcome uh, Matt uh, Domiancic. Matt, how are you, buddy? I'm doing good. Thank you. Matt, the thing is, I, I know your, your subtitle name is the uh, Tactical Chaplain. Isn't that right? Well, I was doing interviews and people were like, you got to have a website. I didn't want a website. I didn't want social media. And they said, you need to make it catchy. And somebody threw that name out. And I was like, God, it's so cheesy because you throw, but, but you say tactical with anything and people get interested. You say tactical with chaplain and it just makes people say kind of like get curious. So we ran with it. So, well, I think, I think tactical, the chaplain, man, that's to me, it's like, you know, Guns and God or God and guns, actually. I think it's, it's, it's awesome. I, I love it. And, you know, I'm looking over your bio. We actually talked a couple of days ago. And I think fascinating is a fair word to describe you and your story and the mission you're on. And I'm looking at some of your stuff. You got a, a degree in poly, uh, political science, forensic science, sports psychology, and, of course, uh, pastoral theology. And uh, in the background, law enforcement. So, why don't I shut up for a minute and tell us a little bit about your background and we'll move forward through your life and, and what you're doing now as we, as we get going. So, I mean, in this context, I'm a medically retired cop. I worked patrol, peer support, SWAT, full-time police academy instructor for fitness and officer survival. I was also the wellness coordinator. And even back then in 2006 to 2009, wellness, a lot of times people think is just mental health. And then people have training on addiction, suicide, and PTSD. But wellness to me is like having a fitness level in all these different areas of your life throughout your career. So when I was an academy instructor, I was also a Division I strength conditioning coach while I was a cop at Yale and Georgetown, played football at Air Force Academy, powerlifted at Air Force, and played football at Colgate. So I set up workouts for cops and built the weight room like a division one strength conditioning weight room with MMA gear, Muay Thai bags, uppercut bags, ground and pound dummies, kegs, logs, strongman equipment. We had polar heart rate come in and we had heart rate monitors on everybody during fitness, defensive tactics, shooting and scenario training to try to help them understand their physiology and when they're out of whack. And then I also had an early heart rate variability device called the stress eraser. You can now do it on your phone to practice doing breath work. I had a full supplement program, just like athletes. And I did things like imagery, progressive muscle relaxation, obviously breath work. And I wanted a, like mind, a real mind, body, and spirit throughout your career, not wait until you're broke and then let's offer you some resources. So that's a little bit about my background and my philosophy in law enforcement. I think fitness, fighting, and shooting are super important. But so is being aware of your thought life. And this is woo-woo, but we all got a heart. So being aware of your thoughts and feelings. And scientifically, we could go down a rabbit hole. If you're stuffing your emotions, you're unaware of the effects it's having on your adrenaline, your cortisol, your testosterone, which is affecting every area of your life. And we are taught to stuff our emotions as men. It gets even worse as cops. And there's things that you're seeing as a cop that are not normal, a cop, a fireman, a veteran. So mind, body, spirit, let's stay fit our whole life rather than wait till we're 300 pounds. For anybody that's an athlete, if you get an injury, coming back, like if you completely give up and often you get depressed when you're injured, you eat junk food, you're drinking beer. If you get chubby or out of shape, getting back into in-season shape is, is an MF -er for real. And even the people that in high school and college – football per se that didn't condition in the summer then come to football camp out of shape it is horrible to get yourself into shape during camp it's a lot easier just to stay in shape year round and we need to do that with our our thought life our emotions our physical bodies um and our values and how we live out those values as well as cops so we don't crash and burn well you know looking at your bio and talk with you one of the things you brought a minute ago was playing i think it was linebacker am i right yeah, yeah, a linebacker. Yeah. Linebacker. And one of the things I find so fascinating about about your bio is um 
how all these pieces have really come together to, to put you in a place where you are right now with all these, these tools and resources and experiences to help you relate and serve our men and women in law enforcement the way you're doing it now. But one of the things, you know, I played football in high school and college and it was another, uh, did professional athletics in another capacity later on for a long time. And I want you to talk about, I mean, a lot of people listening or watching play sports, but playing football or any sport, you know, how did that help you prepare to where you are now with the discipline, the regimen, things like that? It actually sports taught me everything. And even as a coach, a strength conditioning coach at Yale, Georgetown, and I was a strength coach and a sports psychology consultant for what's called a velocity, a private sports performance gym, where we did NFL combine prep every year. To me, sports are a model for life. You don't have to see eye to eye, but you got to stand shoulder to shoulder, just like cops. And you got to deal with wins and losses, injuries, adversity. Not every day is a good day. You have coaches that are jerks. You might have a cheap shot that the, you know, the ref doesn't call the penalty. There's nothing you can do about it. What's in your sphere of control? Keep busting your ass. You're, you're in control of your effort and your attitude, always. And you can look up better ways to perform in whatever area of your life set goals, a game plan, and, like, get after it. So I was lucky I had a dad, and and a, having a father figure that's involved is super important. That's a whole other topic. You want to talk about father wound and father hunger. My dad coached everything when I was a kid. And uh, when I was in sixth grade, he got me a jump rope, a Walkman, which was a big deal back then, with the Jody taste for the Army Rangers and uh, Marine Recon and ankle weights so in sixth grade i'm doing jump rope jogging around the neighborhood neighborhood with ankle weights listen to these army ranger force recon guys in seventh grade he went to the high school coaches said hey can my boy work out with the high school team and i had to ride my bmx bike to the high school get picked on by the high school kids do the summer lifting and conditioning and as a reward my dad picked me up through the bike in the back of the truck and got me a gatorade on the way home he also asked the coaches what should he have at home? And that my dad bought me a bench, a squat rack, a lap pull down. And so in seventh grade, I had a corner in the basement where I'm grinding. And there was somebody that he had an electric that we were in Ohio still that somebody's wife sold herbs. My dad didn't know anything about Wait, what, what nutrition should he do? And some somebody's wife put me on herbs. We go into whatever the. No, man, herb, what? I went her. These were legal herbs, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not talking about weed. Yeah. Just herbs. And we went into whatever the health food store was in our small, the kind of rural Ohio town. And my dad got me amino acids and protein shakes. So like in seventh grade, lifting, reading Arnold Schwarzenegger books, Dr. Uh, Squat, Fred Hatfield books. That's what I wanted for my birthday and Christmas, like books on lifting, Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia. And so I got hooked on eating strict, working out. Joe Reader chewables in between basketball practice. So since seventh grade, I've been kind of fanatical about what can you do nutrition? What can you do working out? Um, and one thing I will say, looking back, train smarter, not harder. Everything was no pain, no gain back then. So not as much rest, recovery, and relaxation. But my love for football and training is really what helped me do a lot of things in life. Like Air Force Academy is a pain in the butt. A lot of super intelligent people that break down who does well, Air Force, West Point, Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, VMI, those types, Citadel, the jocks, they may not be as smart as the other cadets, but they're used to getting yelled at. They're used to time management. They're used to grinding and being tired. Like Air Force Academy wasn't as hard for the jocks because mentally we could take it. Colgate's supposed to be a difficult school compared to Air Force. It was nothing. Same with like going to grad school and doing other things or eventually going to a police academy. I think a lot of athletes go to a police academy and you, you get out of shape because you're just doing, I mean, a lot of academies traditionally did a lot of running, push-ups, sit-ups, or burn you out. Like if you're on a structured program and you go to a boot camp or a police academy, you might actually get in worse shape than the person that's like mediocre but doesn't PT. So just running, push-ups, sit-ups, or doing really stupid haphazard workouts every day and boot camp or a police academy get somebody that's not an athlete in shape and gets the athlete uh, out of shape a little bit. But well, look, I, I got to jump in there. But the reason I'm laughing is because, like you said, after my football career in college, I, I went to 
into racing bicycles. It's not about you. I mean, this is not about me, but relating <laughs> to what you're talking about right now. And uh, when I went to the academy, the California High Patrol Academy, I went in at six percent body fat. Damn. And when when I left, I was six point five percent body fat. <laughs> <laughs> because what you're saying is right. Look, in the the, the CHP Academy is a very rigorous academy. It's a living academy. Um, and it is hard. Uh, but like you said, for me, it was like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I kind of worked harder, you know, lifting, you know, squatting 450 pounds and bench pressing nice. 300 pounds and things like this. And really, um, you know, like I said, no pain, no injuring yourself and having to get back on the bike the next day or back on the gym the next day. So um, it was a little bit of a rest for me. It's not sound arrogant. It's just, it's what I was used to was, was before it was more difficult. So this is going what you're talking about. So I'll get out of the way. Go ahead and continue. No, no, no. My first academy in Connecticut was in the barracks too. So, and, and state police academies are traditionally much harder than a lot of police academies. And that's a whole other, we could talk a whole hour about that. Even 10, 15 years ago, do not make academies easier. The fitness should be hard. The academics should be hard. There's got to be standards. You got to pass every month or be fired. You know, there's got to be higher shooting standards and a lot more DT, but, um, yeah, you, your original question, being an athlete, to me, teaches you so many social skills as well as work ethic and how to handle adversity, how to be a leader and know you also have to be a follower and work with people you may not see eye to eye with. So I think sports are a beautiful thing, and America has lost it with kids being raised on iPads, iPhones, smartphones, laptops, video games, TV. Like, I grew up in Ohio in high school in western Pennsylvania – and if we weren't playing our organized sports or I wasn't at the gym, we were in the backyard playing different sports or in the dr driveway playing pickup hoops or out in the woods building forts or hunting or doing outdoor type stuff. Yeah. It's uh, look, I'll, I'll be 60 years old in a couple of months and my kid's going to be nine years old in a few days. <laughs> so what's wrong with this picture? But, um, <laughs> You know, my wife and I, the same the same battle with him. Um, it's not too much of a battle because it's, we haven't fairly regimented. We give him screen time, but you're absolutely right. Something else you talked about earlier was was the the hunger for fathers, and that that could and should be, you know, with you a, a totally separate uh, show because it's so complex and it's so important. It's a topic that we really should talk about when relating to law enforcement and the civil society and the rule of law to talk about that. But it sounds like you had a great, great uh, person in the form of your father and set you in the right path. So speaking of your path, what, um, you know, how did you go from being in law enforcement, you know, kind of to where you are now, which would put you in that particular direction? So I was just coming into what I thought was my dream. I was living my dream. So I, I think it was about a year into making the SWAT team. And we had a full-time team, but part of the team was full-time legit, lift and shoot and do recon every day and set up the training for what was called supplemental. And so I was full-time patrol or full-time at the county, but I had a take-home car. We had all the gear and we got to train at least two days a month and go to any of the specialized schools that came up. We got the time off. We got to do warrant services and call outs. Um, and I got hurt during a workout. I knew nothing about doctors or work comp because I had not been to a doctor since our college football and being a starting middle linebacker, you get treated like gold. We want to do everything to get you back on the field. I had no idea that my work comp caseworker was not a nurse practitioner or something like that. I assume they were. They're civilians that have no medical background at all. And they're sending you to doctors. And the doctor said I needed a surgery. And and then the who I thought was a nurse or a nurse practitioner said, yeah, just do the surgery. That's a long story. I had a lot of questions about it. I get the surgery. They mess it up. You know, work comp in most places is a long time, lots of delays. I have infections. I had things didn't go right. The corrective surgery takes a really long time to get scheduled, and I'm on antibiotics, opiates, muscle relaxers, and then over a couple of years of failed corrective surgeries, my hormonal, digestive, and immune system crash from stress and being over-medicated on pharmaceuticals, before we really knew pharmaceuticals were 
uh, I mean, what a joke is it? Like this whole country is we have we use more prescription medications than the rest of the world combined. We use like eighty percent of the world's prescription meds. Um, so my health collapsed, and I'm usually two twenty to two forty, anywhere from like eight to ten percent body fat. I was 270, 30% body fat, lost control of my bodily functions, wearing diapers, was chronically ill and severe chronic pain and forced to medically retire. And thank God I had a therapist in the DC area that had yoga, massage, a nutritionist, because she even understood 15 years ago, your neurotransmitters are made in your gut. Your gut health relates to your immune system and your mental health. Um, and so, and stress and trauma is stored in the body. So, you know, she had massage and yoga and training the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, she told me to move to California for functional and integrative doctors. Cause they're like, she and some other doctors are like, dude, your hormones and your body is shut down from the stress, from the medications, from all these complications. And I'm like, you want me to move to Los Angeles? Like I'm kind of a hillbilly DC is crowded, expensive, bad traffic and extremely political. And this is even before all the nonsense we're dealing with now. But she's like, Matt, the doctors out there are more like me in LA. There's gonna be more doctors that understand that. So I moved out here for doctors and thought I was gonna be here for a short time. Like, hey, I'm gonna go out there, turn it around and go somewhere and get a PhD in clinical or sports psych. Well, it took a lot longer than I wanted to get better, but there are like, I have a psychiatrist that believes in talk therapy, neurofeedback, meditation, nutrition, yoga, physical therapy. That's more than, can you just put your clothes on and get in and out of bed? What was your activity level before? We want to keep you as close to your original activity level as possible with a lot of tissue work and exercising, not just here's ice or a heating pad. If you get a PT assistant at a lot of places, um, I had a chiropractor for a while that was exclusively doing like deep tissue work for 45 minutes, then an adjustment at the end. And my primary care looks at your blood work, gives you nutritional advice, supplements, vitamin IVs. And I needed them at the time because my gut was shut down. And even the supplements I took weren't showing up on my blood work. So I moved out here for that, rehabbed my butt off, went back to school for a second master's in sports psychology under Dr. Ken Revisa, one of the grandfathers of sports psychology. And my game plan was, study human performance, which I had been studying my whole life, and then go get a PhD in clinical psych so then I could work with first responders, veterans, and athletes who stigmatize anything around the word psychology or mental health, rightfully so in some ways if you don't understand their culture. They're sports psychologists that never played sports and are grossly out of shape. You walk in the room, they're not going to want to talk to you. You don't understand what I'm doing for a living. And the same thing with cops and veterans. If you don't know what it's like to point a gun at somebody or get in a fight on the side of the road in the middle of the night, like, or you cry when I share a story about something a cop or a fireman sees every day, like, how are you going to help me if I don't feel like you understand me? So I finished the sports psych masters, and I think it was within weeks after finishing that, I was going to take a year off and just keep coaching and doing sports psych and ministry. And I get a call from a new work comp caseworker that said, you cost too much money. I'm your life coach. I'm going to make your decisions from now on. And literally, quote, you cost way too much money. And instead of doing talk therapy or neurofeedback, they can just give you medications. Instead of seeing the physical therapist three days a week, you can just take medications. And your other doctor's a quack. That nutrition, vitamin IV, and hormone stuff. And you're too fit and productive in retirement anyway. So let's, I'm going to get you a full-time job that I choose. Wait, my doctor's a quack. I'm on no drugs. And before I was on like eight or 10 drugs. I was on a lot of drugs when I got retired, medications. And now I'm on no drugs, just supplements and uh, hormone replacement. And I'm too fit and productive and I don't have to wear diapers. And there's a lot of stuff I have to do behind the scenes. Like I do intermittent fasting. I've been doing it before it was popular or cool because I have to just based on I have uh, damaged my intestines. It can't be repaired. Um, so yeah, they took me to court for over three years, cut off my pay and my medical care. And it was a nightmare. It was a living hell. And it's the betrayal that a lot of people feel, whether it's work comp, somebody videotapes you and complains, we're going to bench you and investigate you just purely on optics. And then you're out of sight, out of mind, your friends stop calling, or they're scared to call you. Not in my case, but a lot of cases of guys now. 
So you feel like you get betrayed. You went from zero to zero. In a work comp case, you're now just a number on a grid sheet. And yeah, does the public know that they don't care about cops and firemen or our veterans when they get hurt serving their community? They don't care about you at all in most agencies, unfortunately. So I did not get a PhD, um, but I got offered a full ride for a master's in pastoral theology that I did purely for my own sanity and really did it to work on myself. The concentration was something called spiritual direction, which is something I've been in since 22. And I would always find priests that were also therapists or psychologists. So it was kind of a two for one for me. So it was really nice to get to study it and just work on myself and apply it to myself really deeply. And I, I used to only, since I was young, I've been into my faith life since, well, I was, I'm a cradle Catholic always went to church, always prayed, even in college. But in college, I tore my calf in half. They said I'd never run again. That's a whole other story where I thought I'd never play football or be able to be, I thought I wanted to be a fed or go back in the military. I took a deep dive into meditation and my faith life in undergrad because of that football injury. And thank God I came back. But it was really cool to study it where I was trying to apply it, where a lot of people go to grad school for whatever topic, just academically to get a job. I was purely going to work on myself. I met a professor who's actually an expert in masculine psychology and spirituality, has been leading men's retreats and contemplative prayer retreats for like 40 years, an author of many books, and that guy got to be my mentor. So for me, it's one of those, I missed the PhD, but I found this mentor that I needed at that time in my life to take me to the next level psychologically and spiritually. In addition to my psychiatrist is a deeply spiritual Jewish man and yogi and I've had so many great influences in my life in addition to my father. And again, these are, these are important things too. What mentors or elders do people have out there? And even at our ages, do we have other people? When you have an interest, you read a book, you try to reach out to that author, or go to a workshop, a seminar, a retreat around whatever topic you're passionate about. Like go find somebody that's better than you or smarter than you at that thing and try to like suck some knowledge out of them. Um, so that's what happened during that degree took a deep dive into Christian, contemplative Christian tradition, Buddhist retreats, did Buddhist training, did a Native American vision quest in the desert, and just worked on facing a lot of my, I was still hurting, even though I had been years, I was hurting from the retirement and then from the legal case, um, but just working on my identity and what was going to be my new purpose in life, because I missed being a cop. I missed being a college coach, even though I was coaching pro athletes, I still missed being on the college scene. It's different than pros or a private facility. Um, and then through a longer story, through one of the big brand name agencies out here, I was volunteering with the psychologist for wellness and resiliency and with the chaplains. Things got weird with the chaplains. That's a whole other topic, too. There's a lot of chaplains that really don't spend much time with the cops, and they like hanging out with supervisors or just showing up after critical incidents. And it was actually weird that some of the chaplains were bummed that I was hanging out with the psychologist. I'm a volunteer. Like, if I'm ha helping cops, who cares why I'm going to the station As a ch with the chaplains or with the psychologist? So I actually it was like, peace out on that, went to another agency. And then I'm with a couple of agencies and through an informal network and other nonprofits and referrals from police psychologists. I just deal with cops from all over Los Angeles, all over the country through nonprofits and even the East Coast through my former connections up in Connecticut and the D.C. area. Well, that's the Reader's Digest version. Well, no, you no, you this is interesting because uh, you hit on something that um, I'm familiar with, you know, right or wrong, good or bad is reality that unfortunately law enforcement in my 30 years of experience in law enforcement, um, the truth is you you almost never see a chaplain certainly not in um their professional capacity mm -hmm. until the crisis occurs until you have the officer involved shooting you know uh, the, a lot of the death of course uh, you know major injury some catastrophe and obviously no person can be every place all the time but what you touched on there about um the way you operate try to be involved on a semi-regular basis or, you know, not just on a, you know, as needed basis, but being proactive. Can you, can you touch on that? And I want you to, to talk about 
you know, what your interactions are like in those non-crisis uh, interactions with with officers. So whether you're peer support in a large agency, a mental health professional or a chaplain, if you show up, say, after an officer gets killed or gets in the shooting, and nobody at that station knows who the heck you are, peer support, psychologist, chaplain, nobody's talking to you. Like, that's just, cops don't trust people, period. And we're not trusting people we don't have a relationship with. And I'm, and sometimes I, I know I'm not even doing the best job I could because I need to be at the, you need to be at the stations once or twice a week at a bare minimum, showing your face, riding along. And so what I did for, for a while was I, I used to go to SWAT training, canine training. I still lift at different stations. And part of that's maybe that's the Lord's plan. The private facility finally shut down during COVID. And so I lift at the two different, the two main police departments that I work at. So that's time that I'm around. I can stop in a briefing. I see people in the parking lot. I've been to firearms training. I take the guys on a fishing retreat to Missouri. Some people, I do hang out with people like go get meals, go get coffee. It takes about a year for a cop to trust anybody, even me as a retired cop. And some of the cops at the one department I did martial arts with many years ago, I did Krav Maga and Muay Thai with. And so I'll give you an example, like one uh, briefing or roll call, wherever your listeners are, they East Coast, we call it a roll call out here. It's briefing. Yeah. Yeah. I get introduced. It's that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I get introduced as a chaplain. People, nice to meet you, sir. And it's like there's an active shooter. Everybody left. But then the next shift I'm in, the sergeant did Krav Maga and Muay Thai with me. He's like, hey, our new chaplain. Hey, we used to do Krav Maga and Muay Thai together. He's a cop from the East Coast, was a SWAT guy, police academy instructor, played college football. We used to be a college strength coach. People turn around, drop F-bomb, where do you work? What's up? Blah, blah, blah. Like, they, they showed my humanity and my cop card a little bit, and at least people gave me an opportunity to, you know, share a little bit about myself. But then I rode every single week. I think in each department for the first year, I rode at least once, if not twice a week. And then went to the trainings, observed the trainings, and you got to build relationships to where people share the good stuff in their life. And also, you need to mirror back the good and be a good listener. And also, no matter what, if you're peer support, a chaplain, or a mental health professional, you can't be there just to fix them. Nobody wants that. No man wants that. No man or woman cop wants that. I need to have a relationship of trust and rapport where you'll you'll share the little good things with me before you talk about the injury psychologically or the knee one that work comps denying or the marital problems or I'm having flashbacks about that shooting or that car wreck or whatever it is. So you gotta like if you're a chaplain and people don't know your name and you don't know the people's names, this is what I, I presented over video at IACP for patrol chaplaincy versus community chaplain. Hey if you're a full time clergy that doesn't have the time to hang out at the station and you want to respond to calls in the community, fine. That's that's great serve the citizens. But if you want to serve the cops, you got to ride along, go to the training, understand the culture, and they need to know who you are and you need to know who they are. So like I bump into my guys at the, I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm by the beach and there's guys that'll be walking or running on the beach or I'll be out with my girlfriend at a restaurant and people, hey Matt, what's up? You know, and you get the knuckles, you get the half bro hug, like we're, you're part of the family to some degree and you have a friendship because you've spent time with them lifting weights, shooting guns, and riding in behind the cage or next to them if it's a one-man car. You've got to have a relationship with cops before they're going to trust you with their problems. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I said that having you know been in management for about the last half uh, of my career, supervision management, you know, I dealt a lot with peer support. The funny thing is, or the irony, um, I, as a supervisor, leader, manager, I actually knew all, uh, the people that worked in peer support because often I was overseeing an incident. So I personally interacted with these people and, and I actually didn't, didn't need their resources, thank God. That, but the people they're interacting with, you're absolutely right. They were strangers to those people, those officers involved in a critical incident, in a critical debriefing. And so, you know, half the battle is just getting those officers to relax, to open up. It's not an easy process. And, of course, this goes on for days or weeks sometimes with these critical debriefs and different peer support resources. 
So, you know, I really love uh, it's, this is a kind of a fresh uh, approach as far as I'm concerned in my experience, what you're talking about embedding yourself in the people that you that you do serve or potentially will serve in an incident. What is um, what what have been your your biggest challenges as far as providing support to uh, an officer or officers, depending on the situation, is there a common thread as far as, uh, I mean, whether it's resistance or whether it's, um, like I said, lack of trust, what are the biggest hurdles you have to overcome in, in what you do now, Matt? Uh, if you put in the time and they feel like you care, you understand them, you're not judging them. So the, I was also the chaplain for a rehab center for cops and firemen. There was a period of time the first year of COVID where I couldn't ride when we thought everybody was going to die by just like looking at each other. <laughs> so there was an officer who one of the officers I dealt with was struggling with some issues and I got him into this rehab center and I visited him. And then the director called me and said, hey, everybody wants you to come back. And it turned out that every Saturday for the first year of COVID, I drove two hours and I met every officer or firefighter for one to two hours. I'd be there till 9, 10, 1 a.m. in the morning, then drive back two hours. Um, and I got to hear the same stories hundreds of times. And the feedback I constantly got was, and granted, these people are, these are after people have PTSD and addiction. We, we like you more than the therapist. Well, one, I'm a, I'm a brother, right? Like once, and and two, every weekend I came, the new people are like, F that, I ain't talking to the chaplain. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Then I walk in with camo shorts, a baseball hat, and a T-shirt. And back then I was 245. I dropped down to 220, but I still look pretty big. They're like, what? Like, yeah, we told you, whatever. And, and he doesn't care about religion. And I care about religion if you care about religion. It's whatever your religious beliefs are. If they're important to you, how can I learn more about your values and beliefs and help you live them out better? It's not about where I am and no chaplain should be pushing their religion on anyone. That's another thing that people worry about and is wrong to do. It's serving each and every person, whether they're religious or not. But the feedback I would get is you listen very well. You don't give me bullshit advice. I know you care. I know you understand. And I don't feel judged. And we all need people like that. But definitely when you're dealing with the shit that cops do, you need somebody that you can get stuff. I call it the misery cup. We can only take so much shit. And the trauma and the, and the immersion and the suffering of humanity is not what cops complain about. But believe me, it is filling up unconsciously your misery cup. If you're not processing and learning lessons from the adversity, the suffering, and the trauma, you got to do something and dump it out. But you also have other things. Your adverse childhood experiences you haven't dealt with are getting unconsciously scratched on the calls you're on. The arguments with the significant other, the stress of the kids, the finances, the politicians, the public, the DAs that are scapegoating cops, having a bad supervisor, having poor management by a city or county, the work comp battles. I have a laundry list of other things that I hear people complain about that are bigger stressors than facing the evil, the darkness, or the trauma, but you're getting hit from both ends. And when the people behind you, when people in your chain of command don't support you or your city or county or the state or you feel like people in this country – it's almost like a moral injury, and that's harder to face than the gangbanger with a gun. So if you're not pouring out that misery cup and it overflows, everything in your life, going back to, I've heard it a hundred times, when my parents got divorced, my dad never said he loved me, my dad didn't come to my ball games. my mom did this, my dad did that. It starts in childhood, and then if they were in the military, there's things in the military they didn't deal with, and then there's calls. I didn't think about that call 15 years ago, what, right when I got FTO. Now it's back. It's haunting me. There's, there's all kinds of things you haven't dealt with, and they overflow. And that's when the problems and the self-medicating start with booze, sleeping with people you shouldn't sleep with, working way too much overtime, buying toys, driving fast, tobacco, caffeine, junk food, and even the CrossFit and Jiu-Jitsu guys, which I love working out. But if you're addicted to working out and your pedals always mashed to the floor, that's a way to cover up your emotional reactivity as well and not deal with things in your life. I'm, I don't know if I went off on a tangent and was answering your question, but. Well, you, you did answer my question and more, which is great because you're hitting some of these things. You're almost like uh, uh, 
writing a textbook of, of red flags, of indicators, of problems. And, uh, you know, I saw this so much in my career. I mean, you, you could, you know, after a while, after seeing your, your seventh, your 12th, your 21st example of this, and you can see someone going down the wrong path. And the older I got and the more tenured I got in, in, in the agency, you could pick it out faster and faster and faster. And you knew much sooner who was on a path to destruction. And sometimes you grab these people, you know, as, you know, even though I supervised a lot of these people or a number of these people, I managed them. I also had grown up with them in law enforcement. So sometimes you grab them as a friend. Now's the boss and say, hey, dude, hey, look, we're going out the wrong way here. And I look back and it's that's why I'm sitting here. I was just mesmerized because, man, it's like he was talking about my career. We're <laughs> talking about hundreds of thousands of cops careers because mm-hmm. these issues are common throughout the law enforcement agency. And some of these people I was able to help get them the professional help they needed. And some, Matt, I didn't, I couldn't, uh, myself or other people, and it ended the worst possible way you could imagine. And those are the things I regret that you couldn't save some of these people. And again, these are rare given mm-hmm. officers that, you know, are in law enforcement. We don't want to sound like <laughs> this is the culture of law enforcement. It's not. But we know that law enforcement uh, agencies are made up of individual men and women, and they have individual challenges and crises in their lives. So, no, what you're saying, it was, it was to me, I was glued to the screen listening to you, um, watching you, watching and listening to you. <laughs> um, when you talked about, uh, you threw in something there about, about the media and politicians. Have you seen, you know, obviously it's the elephant in the room the last five, 10, maybe 15 years of these increased external pressures, not only on the individual officer, but on law enforcement agencies, a law enforcement profession. Have, have you actually seen like a, a market increase in, you know, examples of that affecting officers in, in your time dealing with them? Oh, for sure. Because I mean, back in the day, and I think even when I started, even as a chaplain, like stolen car pursuit, like grinning, smile on your face, we get a chance to rise to the occasion in a dangerous situation to take somebody that's threatening the public and put them behind bars. And it's like, it's a challenge and it's risky, but it's this is what I signed up for to do what's right. And then you get done. Nobody's hurt. Even if they, it was a pursuit, foot pursuit, fight, nobody's hurt. We're all good. They go to jail. Great job. Good time. Now it's like, did somebody, first of all, you get out of the car and they're filming, depending on where you are in the country, you got the peanut gallery filming, screaming, judging you. And let's, I want to throw this example out. I don't have the numbers precisely of how many use of force incidents there are and how many people get killed by cops, but it's minute compared to all other kinds of statistics, including it's 100 or 200 or 250,000 people a year are permanently maimed or killed by medical errors. And doctors and nurses do not wear body cameras. You cannot go in the surgery room and film and scream and heckle them. They're not getting lawsuits, or even if there's not a lawsuit, hey, guess what, surgeon, we're gonna cut your pay a little bit, and you're gonna sit in the office for a year until the, the people chill out that you made a mistake on their family member. And, and nobody else at work can talk to you during that year too. All the things that are going on now as a cop, there's supposed to be a lawyer, a gunslinger, like a tier one Delta Force, a ninja UFC fighter, but make fighting look pretty, which does the public know like in California, four hours every two years, if your kid only practice his sport two hours a year, how good would they be? They'd be terrible. And you expect somebody to be a ninja? With 80 hours, 100 hours of uh, martial arts in the academy, and it's it's not even pure martial arts. It's baton, OC spray, taser, handcuffing, and some generic martial arts moves. You don't get enough motor skill development to pull it off on the street. Um, they're supposed to act like a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, they, yeah, did I have? Did you have to try to save people's lives back in the day? Unless it was a cop or a kid, we're waiting for the firemen. I mean, we didn't have medical training. You may have to shoot some. 
to somebody that shot at you and then saved their life, or now you're going to be charged with failure to perform duty. You say the wrong thing on the body cam, or even if you didn't say the wrong thing, but somebody edits their cell phone clip, you may get investigated or just benched for optics sake. The media is going to lie about you. You're going to get death threats. And by the way, the minority cops, their own friends and family call them traitors, right? They get condemned by their own bloodline. It's, it's a living nightmare, and they get death threats. You worry about your spouse and children. People don't understand they're making less money when you're not getting differential pay or you're not on a special unit. You're not getting your court paid. Like, you're, you're in a financial bind. You're gonna Sometimes it ruins a marriage. You lose your house. Like, it's unbelievable. Guys don't want to get in a pursuit now because it's like, does the public in Los Angeles know that you can chase a stolen car that's filled with guns and drugs and felons, and they're going to get processed, fingerprinted, and released? If you catch them now, if they fight and we fight back to get them under control, but somebody complains, I may get charged with a crime and God forbid they pull the gun and I shoot them. I may get charged with murder, but I know ultimately if I chase the stolen car with the guns and drugs, they probably won't get punished, at least in Los Angeles. So is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? And then those people are miserable though. Because they really want to chase them, but it's like, do I want to lose my house and put my wife and kids in this situation? And you look at Seattle, Portland, D.C., Chicago, go on down Baltimore, go on down the line of all these cities where they're condemning cops. And then you see a pursuit and Georgia Highway Patrol, they're not just pitting, they're like T-boning cars. But the bystanders are saying, look, they got them, they got them. The community, obviously the local politicians and the DAs support them in some areas. So the police can still do their job. But in a lot of parts of this country, we have voted for people, and I hate politics, but this is the fact. We have voted for people at every level of government, including a certain president that condemned all kinds of law enforcement and was wrong every time they interfered in a law enforcement situation. But the media never covers the reality. Ask, I'm in Manhattan Beach, California, one of the wealthiest towns in America, Doctors, lawyers, financial people. And I've asked people, and everybody had their BLM signs up. And by the way, I just had a project in South LA to volunteer with off-duty law enforcement. Over 1,500 people in Manhattan Beach viewed my post in 24 hours. I got an email, great job. Not one volunteer or one person donated food. But everybody protested and said they care about the inner city people around here. But they won't volunteer 10 miles down the road. I'm going off on tangents, but if you go back and you ask these wealthy people anywhere that voted a certain way, what was the Michael Brown case? Oh, that poor innocent child got gunned down in the street by an evil, racist, white cop. No, did you see the video of him towering over the little store clerk that he committed a crime? And did you know he had gunshot residue on his hands and he was six foot three, 290 plus pounds? Does America know that? And that's one of the biggest momentums of starting this anti-police rhetoric. Started with a certain president and that incident. And the truth and reality never got out. And that cop, as I understand it, has been in witness protection program. His life is over. Cops Man, make mistakes. Right. I, I love your passion. And Every cop, I think maybe even not cops, but every probably every person listening to this podcast can understand why you are able to so well relate to law enforcement officers because you get it. And I said, you you didn't mention any names. I won't either, Barack Obama. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I slipped out. <laughs> but this is where it started. I think we can tie, we can tie this massive cultural change, um, you know, heading in a negative uh, a direction to, uh, regarding law enforcement back to the Michael Brown incident. I mean, the whole thing, the entire incident as reported by mainstream media in 2014, the hands that don't shoot, it never happened. That never, ever happened. And once people start buying into that narrative, they bought into so many other narratives that were either flatly, completely, absolutely lies or at the very very best they weren't representative of the actual facts of the case and and we really haven't gotten out of that pattern yet we have not gotten out of that pattern uh, so 
that's why I ask about, you know, how how in, in your line of work have you seen this affecting officers? I know how it's affected officers, you know, I've only been retired a couple of years. This is why I talk about a civil society, the rule of law. The rule of law is everything. If we don't treat people equally under the law, we have chaos. We have a complete disintegration of a civil society. And if people like you working from within, trying to shore up these guys and gals to keep doing their job. You know, just yesterday, my wife and kid and I were at dinner at a local restaurant and there was about, it was about eight deputy sheriffs. <laughs> I mean, dinner there. I'm sure they called it a meeting, but anyway, but you know, when I got up to leave, they were right next to us at a big table. And I told them, I, and I said, Hey guys, they, I hadn't said a word to them before. I stood up, walked out. And I said, Hey guys, he looked at me, it was two sergeants and a bunch of deputies. I said, guys, I said, every single day, act with professionalism. And they looked at me like, oh, one of these guys, whatever. Like, and I said, but don't ever take any shit off anything. <laughs> In other words, this goes to what you're saying about the reason that these guys and, and, and gals will come, come into the law enforcement agency is because they want to be active. They want to be proactive. They want to be the good guys and gals to actually ensure law and order. And what the society that they're supposed to be serving is doing to them is inhibiting them, discouraging them from protecting that society. It's a sickness. It's an absolute sickness that we have going on right now. And it's purposely, in my humble opinion, perpetrated by a large segment of the population or an elite segment of the population. Not to get too philosophical, but this all goes back to what you're doing, Matt. You know, trying to save these people from from within, to give them the support, give them the the quite frankly, the ability to get through a lot of these challenges and do what they were sworn to do. So, I um, I, I love your passion. We're going to have you back on again. <laughs> I'm just so glad for everybody to be able to hear your passion and to hear your expertise and your ability to relate to people. How can uh, how can people listening to us get a hold of you, Matt? How can they track you down and reach out to you for some assistance? My website, tacticalchaplain.com, has all my info. And I'm not huge on social media, but Instagram, Thin Blue Line Spirituality, Thin Blue Line Spirituality, and the other one is The Tactical Chaplain. I'm more active on the Thin Blue Line Spirituality. But if you go to tacticalchaplain.com, I'm pretty sure I know my email's on there. You can contact me on Instagram. If my phone number's not on there, any cop that's ever reached out to me via Instagram or my website, I give my phone number out and we can chat. And just just for if there's cops out there, anybody that talks to me under, I'm a chaplain, I'm a certified spiritual director, I'm an ordained missionary. So any conversation with me is completely confidential unless you're going to hurt yourself or someone else. Obviously, mandatory reporting, but... um, yeah, they, anybody can reach me that way. And and I would just love it if we could get more people in our communities to understand and want to support our law enforcement. Because people also don't recognize that most departments don't have a really proactive wellness program. Like most agencies are not having great gyms or gym memberships where you can work out on duty. How much firearms training are they getting? Because this is part of your wellness. If you're not prepared for a gunfight, if you're not prepared for a fist fight with more jujitsu, or that's not the only one, that's the popular one, but more martial arts training so you can be more confident. The guys that are jacked or fit and know how to shoot and fight are more confident with a better command presence, and they can be calmer and gentler longer because they know they can handle the business. It's the cops that are not fit, that can't fight, that can't shoot, that escalate the level of force. The public doesn't understand this. We need far more training. Go ahead and make the standards higher for hiring people. Make the academy longer. Make them work out more. Make them shoot more. Make them do whatever you want. Higher standards and also support them. Wave at the cops. Say thank you to the cops. If there's any community organizations that support your local law enforcement, please like join them and be educated about your voting. A lot of people are just, this drop this dualistic party line voting See who's really wants to do something about crime in this country and vote accordingly. Don't vote party line. Um, 
And, and, and what I also wanted to say is, even if people say wellness, chaplains, peer support, mental health professionals, usually only very large agencies have those things. And often the cops don't trust them. So there needs to be more nonprofits, more retreats. I take guys on a couple retreats. I could do more if I had fundraising. That's one thing I need help with. If anybody out there is good at fundraising, I stink at it. I have a fixed disability pension that's not good. I'm using my savings uh, <laughs> to get by since the COVID increases. But if we had more money and more people that wanted to help the cops, they need retreats. They need workshops, seminars. They need more training, not just in the fitness, the fighting, the shooting, but meditation, yoga, breath work, art, whatever. Are you a dance instructor? Volunteer at the local police station to have guys take their girlfriends and their wives dancing, which helps rewire the brain and heal trauma. There's all kinds of things we could be doing as communities to try to support our law enforcement and educate them and other first responders and our veterans that sometimes veterans, I mean, veterans can get shoved tons of drugs, just like I got tons of drugs as a injured cop on work comp. And then people end up chasing it with beer when they're at home alone and isolated while it's an investigation or light duty. People are out of sight, out of mind. So I'm babbling all over the place, but I would just, I pray and beg whoever your listeners are to like, please, wave and smile at the cops and see what you can do on your local community to support them and know that a lot of agencies either can't afford it or even if they have resources, the cops don't trust them. So if you have fishing, hunting, ATVs, horses, if you have something you could offer to your local police department, the guys, gals come out and do some outdoor nature activities or whatever, if you're a yoga instructor, an art instructor, offer it up to the police department. Hopefully they take you up on it. Matt, everybody listening right now, everybody listening has some interest in law enforcement. They're a part of it. They support it. They've been uh, served by law enforcement. Everybody just heard a strong, passionate, clear uh, call to action. And if you are happy with the Euralio Nation, if you believe in what we're doing, reach out to Matt, support him. Also, reach out to our partner, uh, Euralio Project. And we are able to support other charities, just like uh, uh, Matt is asking for here. So reach out to Matt, reach out to your Leo project, send whatever you can in. If you're not on the front lines and not everybody can be, not everybody should be, you can certainly absolutely help those people who are on the front lines like Matt. Matt, God bless you. Uh, we're so grateful to have you on. Love your passion. Looking forward to talking with you again. Everybody, uh, uh, just uh, want to say thanks again to uh, to Matt, and um, we will be in touch. God bless you all. God bless America. Stay strong, and uh, thanks for listening and watching. Matt, take care. Thank you.